the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. As we begin to read this, keep in mind here now, this is a Jewish audience primarily receiving this as we read through this genealogical record. And one of the things I'm going to do here, and I don't do it just because I want to point out the worst of the group, but we're going to notice some of the bad apples in the family tree of Jesus. Now, I don't need to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure if I were to ask how many of you have a few bad apples in your own family tree, you'd be quick to admit it. We all do. We've got a few bad apples from now on. And when you look through this list with me, you're going to see a few bad apples. As Pastor Gary begins his study of Matthew's Gospel in today's message, we'll take a look at Jesus' family history. Most of us have some curiosity in regards to genealogies. It can be boring to read through someone else's, especially from thousands of years ago. But when you start to dig into who those people were, it can get interesting. Jesus' ancestry is no exception. He didn't come from a line of royalty or high-class elites. He came humbly into a family who had its share of embarrassment and shame. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. A bit of an introduction to Matthew might be as long as the actual Bible study tonight, but that's okay because uh, we're just going to take our sweet time going through the Bible. That's what we do around here, and uh, we're in no rush. When Jesus comes again, uh, he'll tell you everything and a lot more than I ever knew, and so I'll be happy to defer to him for the rest of the Bible study if he should happen to return in the midst of tonight's study. But uh, here's what we're going to do as we jump into a new book study to always try to give you a bit of a background and a little bit of an understanding to our approach of this particular book. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just so that we understand the Gospels. We talk about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered what they're called the synoptic Gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in viewpoint in different things that they recorded Uh, They have uh, similar characteristics in the way that they wrote and recorded different events concerning Jesus. And then John's gospel is considered a supplemental gospel because the way that he writes and the things that he records are very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John were eyewitnesses. Luke was not. And yet it appears to us that Luke gleaned uh, his inspiration, not just from the Holy Spirit, but also from eyewitness and probably principally from Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we'll get to all of that when we get to the Gospel of Luke. But so you have what is referred to as the synoptic Gospels because of their similarity. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the supplemental gospel, John, because he's different from the other three gospels. But all four work in harmony. They don't conflict. They work in harmony to communicate the good news or the gospel. That's what gospel means, the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to kind of think of it as somebody who is giving testimony in a court of law for the same scene that they saw. And you could have four different views or interpretations of the events, but they all work in collaboration and in harmony with the same thing. It's just that different people saw things from different angles. So, you know, why is it that we needed four Gospels? I suppose because we need to hear it in four different ways. If you've ever raised kids, you know what I'm talking about. You have to kind of tell them it four different ways, four different times, four different people until they finally get the message. So that's kind of the way that God treats us in some respect, that he knows that we need different angles, so he gives us Matthew. We need a little bit of a different angle, he gives us Mark. And then another one from Luke, and then John is even more different from the three of them. So they all work together in harmony. There is no conflict. I know that there's some skeptics who talk about how, well, Jesus, it seems that he drove out the money changers uh, one gospel says at the beginning of his ministry, another gospel says at the end of his ministry. What do we do with that kind of thing? We put it together. It means he did it twice. That's what it means. So you look at the harmony of the gospels and you see how they overlap. They complement each other. They work in harmony. They don't contradict each other. They all are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, just in terms of Matthew, each gospel has a different emphasis about Jesus. Each gospel has a, has a different emphasis about Jesus. Matthew is going to emphasize the Messiah King. He emphasizes the majestic part of Jesus as the Christ. The Christ is just a Greek word from Christos, meaning Messiah. The Hebrew is Mashiach, same word. When you say Christ, you say Messiah, you're saying the same thing. That's what Matthew strongly emphasizes. When you also then look at Mark's gospel, he's going to emphasize the lowly servant Jesus. When you look at Luke's gospel, he's going to take the vantage point of Jesus being the Son of Man. That's the phrase that he uses often. And then when you look at John's gospel, he emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is that the early church fathers assigned symbols to each of the gospels. So to Matthew, the symbol of a lion was assigned. And that's why the theme of our slides for Matthew is a lion, because Matthew represents Jesus as Messiah King, and the lion being kind of the king of the jungle. So the early church fathers assigned lion as a symbol for the gospel of Matthew. When you look at Mark, because of his emphasis on Jesus as a lowly servant, the early church fathers assigned an ox as a symbol to represent that, that kind of the beast of burden, the one who was the servant who did the plowing and the hard work, and there Jesus is portrayed by Mark as this lowly servant. When you look at Luke's gospel, a, a man, a person, is the symbol of uh, Luke's gospel because he emphasizes Jesus as the son of man. And then when you look at John's gospel, he's portrayed with a symbol of an eagle, because he uh, pictures Jesus as the Son of God, just majestic in his um, appearance as Son of God. Now, this is a correlation. This isn't just something the early church fathers came up with out of nowhere. This is a correlation to Ezekiel 1.10 and Revelation 4.7. Now, you can just jot those verses down on your margin, but let me read to you what those are about. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel has this vision of the throne room of God. And among the various things that he sees are these kind of strange to us, strange angelic creatures. And I say strange because the, the description of them is uh, rather strange to us. 
And in Ezekiel chapter 1, this is what Ezekiel said, starting in verse 4. He says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Now, we find out later in chapter 10 that these are what he refers to as cherubim, these angelic creatures. But then he says in verse 10, Ezekiel 1.10, he says this, listen, he says, their faces looked like this. These are the angelic creatures, and their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, and also... They had the face of an eagle. So each of these cherubim have four faces. So can you imagine like, you know, four sides to your head? So on the one side, there's a face of a man. On the other side, there's a face of an eagle, face of a lion, a face of an ox. And uh, this is strange to us, but this is the appearance of these cherubim. Now, John sees something similar in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, when he sees a vision of the heavenly throne. It's slightly different in that each creature does not have four faces, but he sees four creatures with each a different face, and these are the same faces. So in Revelation 4, 7, he says this. Well, in in the middle of verse 6, he says, In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. So when when we talk about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and having the the, the symbols attached to them, this isn't really strange. This is another way of saying that, in essence, the Gospel has always been in the presence of the Lord, whether it's on the face of these cherubim or whether it's just symbolically represented here, that the good news of Jesus Christ has always been before the throne. The Bible says that Jesus was slain before the creation of the world, which is hard for us to grasp because we're very monochronic in our time sense, and God is outside of the time-space continuum. But the plan of Jesus was unveiled and known before time and eternity, And the gospel has always been before the Father. Now, interestingly, rabbinical tradition, the Jewish tradition, has assigned these same symbols as the standards, the flags of some of the tribes of Israel. And rabbinic tradition teaches that when the Israelites were encamped around the tabernacle in the Old Testament through the wilderness wanderings, that the 12 tribes were divided into three tribes to the north, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west, and three tribes to the south. And that they each bore a standard, a flag. And rabbinic tradition says that Judah was the principal flag bearer for the tribes to the east, and the flag was that of a lion. And that Dan was the principal tribe to the north when they encamped, and the flag standard for Dan was an eagle. And that Ephraim was the principal tribe of the west, and the flag standard was a calf, that of of an ox. And then Reuben was the main tribe of the south, and the standard of the tribe of Reuben was that of a man. So it makes for interesting discussion, but as we go through the Gospels, we're going to use these symbols 
in, in some of our depiction here, again, Matthew being the symbol of the lion because Matthew's main emphasis is that of Jesus, the King, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, just looking a little bit together at Matthew, the person, we don't really know too much about him, to be honest with you, other than what we read from his pen. Uh, but he, his name in Hebrew is Matadyahu. Matadyahu means gift of Yahweh. He was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus picked by hand. He is called Levi in Luke's gospel. When Luke talks about him in chapter 5, 27, he calls him Levi, which may mean that he was a descendant of the tribe of Levi. We don't know for sure. We do know that he was a tax collector. So praise God. God still has a heart for the IRS somewhere. And uh, here he is, a tax collector, which would have been despised among his own people because he would have been an agent of the government. He would have been working for Rome, collecting taxes and money, and usually tax collectors made a living by charging you more than they should have to line their own pockets. So for the most part, uh, Jews who were tax collectors were seen as traitors by their fellow Jews because they were working for the Roman government and they were robbing you in the process. Hello, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. And that's probably the way Matthew started out every conversation, until Jesus calls him. And then Luke tells us that, um, well, in addition, what Matthew tells us about himself is he writes about his own conversion and calling in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. We'll see that when we get there. But something else that Luke tells us uh, is that Matthew gave a great feast for Jesus and that he left everything to follow him. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that part about himself. I think it's an indication of his own humility. He doesn't write in the pages of his own gospel, and by the way, I left everything to follow Jesus. So you've got to give him credit for that. But Luke tells us that. Luke says, by the way, Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. When Jesus called, Matthew went, and he left everything in order to follow him. Now, in terms of the book, Matthew the book, it was written by Matthew. And bear in mind again, he is a Jew, and he's writing primarily for the Jews, that they might believe Jesus is the Christ. This is his main mission. He's Jewish, and he writes, therefore, from a very, very Jewish perspective. He writes in ways that sometimes our Gentile minds, or our Western minds, may not understand until we dig it out better. But to a Jewish mind, to a Jewish reader, they would have instantly understood some stuff that might escape our understanding initially. So we're going to dig out some of this, and even some of it tonight, in the genealogical record. He quotes from the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer, more than a hundred references to Old Testament Scripture. And again, the reason is because he's trying to reach a Jewish population primarily. He's going to use the Jewish Scriptures to communicate the truth about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. If you know a Jewish friend and you have an interest in helping them to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, give them the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew's intent was... Uh, communicating primarily to a Jewish audience that they might understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ. It is believed that Matthew wrote his gospel somewhere around 50 A.D. We know it had to be before 70 A.D. because he still makes references to the temple, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so that's how we know that it had to be before 70 A.D. And then just a few interesting things to know. Because of Matthew's strong emphasis on Jesus as the Messiah, he includes several messianic passages. For example... He uses the word kingdom 54 times because he's emphasizing a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. So he talks extensively about kingdom. He uses kingdom language. And, he's, and he focuses on the kingdom of heaven 32 times, which is astonishing considering that the phrase kingdom of heaven is only found 34 times in the entire Bible. 
Matthew uses that phrase 32 out of the 34 times that you find it in the Bible. He refers to Jesus as the Christ 16 times, as Messiah, the Christ. And he talks about the Son of David 10 times. And that's very important because in order to establish Jesus' rightful identification as the Messiah, Messiah had to be a descendant of David, of King David. And so Matthew is going to remind us of this from various angles, son of David, son of David, son of David. He is the descendant of David. A lot of times in the Bible, when you read son of, it doesn't necessarily mean the immediate son of, it just means a male descendant of, and some even in the genealogical record where Matthew writes, he's skipping a couple generations, but still it's consistent when you say son of, it means a male descendant of. All right. So that's a mouthful, but now let's take a look at the first chapter. And my whole goal tonight is simply to get through the genealogical record. We won't even probably get to verse 18, which starts about the birth of Jesus Christ. So we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. Now, I know you might look at this and say, you've got to be kidding me. You've got about another 40 minutes left in the service, and, uh, and, and you are expecting us to read names. That's right. Now, there's, there's richness in the names. The genealogical record that Matthew gives us is that of the genealogical record of Jesus through his adoptive father, Joseph. There are two genealogical records given to us about Jesus. One is here in Matthew 1, and the other is given to us in Luke chapter 3. The account of Luke chapter 3 is the genealogical record through his mother, Mary. But this record here in Matthew chapter 1 is that through his adoptive dad, Joseph. Now, why is this important? It's important because Jesus is not only the rightful heir to the son of David, biologically through his mother, but legally also through his adoptive father. Mary and Joseph are both descendants of David. But you'll notice in the genealogical record that they are both descendants of David through different sons of David. Joseph is a descendant of David's son, Solomon. We'll see that tonight. Mary is a descendant of David's son, Nathan. But they are both descendants of David, which is why, remember, when the census was taken, and we'll get to this next week, they had to, when the Roman census was taken, they had to go back to Bethlehem because David was born in Bethlehem. They were the house and lineage of David. They had to go to the place of their heritage to be counted in the Roman census. They were both descendants of David, so they had to make that journey in her ninth month to go to Bethlehem to register for the census. So when you read the account here of Matthew, this is the genealogical record of Jesus through his adoptive father, Joseph. Remember, God's father, sorry, Jesus' father is God, not Joseph. Joseph is the adoptive dad. It was not the seed of Joseph that impregnated Mary. It was the seed of God by the Holy Spirit that impregnated Mary. Mary was a virgin. She was not a perpetual virgin. Okay, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. She had other children, the Bible tells us. Okay, somewhere along the line, she lost her virginity. Okay, but it was not before Jesus. It was after Jesus because her pregnancy was that of a virgin. Now, when we talk about the immaculate conception, which the Catholics use as a terminology, that is not a biblical doctrine because what the immaculate conception teaches is that Mary was sinless and therefore Jesus was sinless. It's not true. Mary was not sinless. Mary was in need of a Savior. Even when the Magnificat, she gives this great statement to Elizabeth, 
uh, when she announced, when she goes to visit Elizabeth and, and um, she speaks about a Savior, she herself rejoices in God, her Savior. She acknowledged herself a need for a Savior. Mary was not sinless, but Jesus was sinless because he did not inherit a sin nature. The sin nature is passed through the seed of the man. Because Jesus was the Son of God, it was God's seed that impregnated Mary, and therefore the sin nature was not handed down to Jesus. So he was sinless from birth, and he maintained his sinless state throughout his life because the Bible says, though he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. When we read this genealogical record, this is that through Joseph. It's an interesting fulfillment, by the way, when you think about it, Isaiah 9, 6. So we quote this a lot at Christmas, but it says this, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and we will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now listen to that again. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Those are two different terms. There's a birth to be born, but to be given is a term of adoption. Jesus was both born through Mary, but he was adopted by Joseph, a fulfillment of Isaiah 9.6. So as we begin to read this, keep in mind here now, this is a Jewish audience primarily receiving this as we read through this genealogical record. And one of the things I'm going to do here, and I don't do it just because I want to point out the worst of the group, but we're going to notice some of the bad apples in the family tree of Jesus. Now, I don't need to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure if I were to ask how many of you have a few bad apples in your own family tree, you'd be quick to admit it. We all do. We've got a few bad apples from now and then. And when you look through this list with me, you're going to see a few bad apples right here at the beginning. Now, notice verse 1. He starts out, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there is Jewish. Because... Matthew is wanting his readers to understand this is a fulfillment. He's a descendant of the patriarch Abraham through the patriarch David. This is Jesus Christ, Ben David, Ben Avraham. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And he starts the record with Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, now you'll notice that from verse 2 to 6, and there's a bit of a separation, and then you have the rest of verse 6 through down through verse 11, and then you have a separation. You have verse 12 down through verse 16. And what Matthew's going to do here is he's going to divide the genealogical record of Jesus into three sections of 14 generations each. The first section here is from verse 2 down to verse 6. And he starts with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac. Now, circle the word Abraham. Circle his name. Many of you are going to be very familiar with some of these guys. But just to remind you, he was um, one of the bad apples. I don't disparage your character. I'm just, there, there's a point in me pointing this out at the end, so just bear with me. The fact is, this is what the Bible says about them, okay? That Abraham lied, and not once, but a few times. There's a couple of occasions in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20. You remember when he didn't want to be killed because his wife was beautiful. He married Sarai. And because she was beautiful, he lied when he was in front of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in Genesis 12, and when he was in front of Abimelech, the king of Gerar, in Genesis 20. And he lied and he said that she was his sister because he was trying to save his own hide. The reason was because in those days, a powerful king would take beautiful women into his harem, unless she happened to be married. 
And if she was married, then a king wouldn't take her into his harem unless it just so happened that her husband met with a tragic accident. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give his life to pay for the sins of every person. That includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not